tuning in. I know a bunch of people are on spring break this, this week. Uh, can we just do a point of celebration? Last week, we had to bring chairs out because we had so many people come. That's a major praise God. Can we just give a thank you to the Lord for that? That's awesome. Uh, our, our youth team, our, our Z youth is actually in Puerto Rico right now. And so what I'd like to do is we're just going to pray for them. I know a bunch of people are on, on spring break. So if you're online, if you want to extend a hand, would you guys stand with me? And one of the things that we do, and you don't have to do it, so please don't feel pressure, but when we pray, we lift up holy hands to the Lord, and it's a way of, one, being united, but also just acknowledging that we want the Lord's presence. So if you want to extend a hand with me, we're going to pray over our Z youth team in Puerto Rico. Uh, Father, thank you for the work that you're doing there. We pray for protection, Holy Spirit, uh, that you would be with Derek and Amanda as they are with this team and, and doing the work that you've called them to. Lord, we pray that you would uh, open up doors that need to be opened and prepare the way before them, God. Thank you for the work that you're doing in Z Youth and in this church. And so, Lord, we give this to you and that the name of Jesus would be magnified and lifted high. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. You may be seated. Thank you guys so much. Um, so last week, we started our new series, and it's not really a Lent series, though we did start it at Lent called Awaken, uh, what, st- uh, what got you here. And, and what we're really looking at is where is God moving us into? Now, I have a I have a confession to make. How many of you guys have ever had a brilliant idea and you're like, dude, I'm, I'm a genius. And, and then you realize that like it was somebody else's idea and you just didn't get like, you're like, man, I have this idea for a search engine on the internet called Gaggle. It'd be amazing. Uh, and so here's what was happening. So I was thinking through this message last week and, and kind of processing through this idea when we were talking about new wines and new wineskins and old wines and old wineskins. And as I was looking through it and praying and going, okay, God, what do we want? And I'm like, man, what got you here won't get you there. And I'm like, oh, that's so good. I'm brilliant. And then I searched it up online and I discovered that it's actually a book already by a guy named Marshall Goldsmith. But here's the best part. I already own the book. And so it was one of those moments where in my head I thought I was really smart and I just realized I just, I just stole. So I want to give credit where credit is due And and here's the thing, as we've been talking about this awakening, and it's preparing us for Easter, is that we want to be aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing. And last week, we started off by talking about a story that, or a parable that Jesus shared, which is around new wineskins. Now, let me give you a little backdrop here. Um, So Jesus starts out on the ministry, and if you missed it last week, you can go online and watch it. It's God did some great things last week. And, and Jesus starts off doing these amazing things, but the Pharisees are so caught up in how they've done stuff that they miss what God is doing right in front of them. And one of the key things is that the Pharisees, they, they actually weren't bad guys. The Pharisees started off from a very good place. They wanted to see Israel restored. And the reason why Israel had fallen from the first place is they stopped obeying God's laws. And the Pharisees came on the scene uh, several hundred years before Jesus, and this group of men were like, listen, if we want to get back to where God intended us to be, we need to be obedient to the law. The problem was this. They got so caught up in worrying about following the law that they forgot God in the process. And so here comes Jesus on the scene, and he's doing all these things that don't fit their paradigm, their brand of what it means to follow God, and they miss what God is doing right there in the midst of them. And so it all summers uh, comes around this idea of fasting. Now, here's the deal. The Bible tells us that fasting is a really good thing. God calls us to fast, to take time where we deprive ourselves so that we can lean into something else, which is God. 
But they got so caught up in fasting, they missed the why. They got caught up in the what of doing something instead of why you did it. And so here's Jesus, and, and what the religious leaders did is they determined that in order to be very spiritual, everybody needed to fast at a specific time. And if you were a religious leader, you fasted. That's what you did. But here's Jesus' disciples in Mark chapter 2. They're not fasting. And so the religious leaders come up to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, uh, explain to us, why are your disciples not fasting? And Jesus starts off, he's like, listen, when you're at a wedding, it's a feast, it's a party. You don't fast during a wedding because the bridegroom is here. I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. Of course, they're not going to fast. And then he tells this parable, which so many of us are familiar with, when he says, listen, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. You just don't do it. And the reason is this, is that as the new wine ferments, the old wineskin can't handle it. And what ends up happening is the wineskin will break and therefore you lose both the wineskin and the wine. And last week, what we moved into is this thing is that sometimes the, the good things, the things in our lives that got us to one place aren't enough, enough to get us to the next place. And when Jesus is talking about new wine, he's not talking about the gospel, but rather where the spirit is moving. And our job as Christians, as a church, as those who want to love and follow Jesus, is to look for the places where the Spirit is moving in our lives, in our world, and in our community. And as we do that, God will bring new wine, but we need to hold new wineskins to contain what God is doing. Now, here's the problem. That's hard to do because we like old wineskins. We like what's familiar. And it's not that what is old is bad. It just doesn't always know how to contain the new things that are going on. So as we've been looking at what God has been doing here at Zion, we've been asking the question, okay, Lord, we believe you've moved us into a season of new wineskins or new wines and that you're doing something new in our church. And so what are the things that as we're doing new things, what are the containers that you're asking us to get rid of or to maybe say, maybe that's not the best way to do it. Now, it's not just about church, it's for you as well. How many of you have things in your life that served you really well when you were younger, but maybe don't help you so much now as you've gotten older? Let me give you an example. When I was in my 20s, I would often stay out till 2.30 or 3.30 in the morning with my friends, and we'd go to have Denny's every morning and for the early bird breakfast, and I would get my moons over my hammy. Anybody know moons over my hammy? Rock on, right? And I would get moons over my hammy, and then I had to be up for work at 5.30. So I'd get two hours of sleep, and it was no big deal in my 20s. If I do that now in my 40s, it's a real big deal. Like, my body cannot keep up. This container doesn't work that way anymore. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You ever had that thing, like, when you were a kid, you'd hurt yourself, like, a day later, you'd be fine. Now you do it, and six weeks later, you're still paying for it. You know what I'm talking about? This is the same concept is that there are things in my life that needed to change as I've changed. Now, some of you in your marriages, what got you to, into the loving place of your marriage worked, but as you've grown as people, your marriage stopped growing, and eventually you find yourself dissatisfied. You're finding going, you know what? I, I feel like I'm falling out of love, when the reality is, it's probably this. God wanted to do something new in your marriage, but you were so busy holding on to what was that you missed what God was doing now. The same is true in our jobs and in our relationship with Christ. And so as we looked at this idea of new wine and new wineskins, it's not that the old is bad necessarily, but what got you here won't get you there. Now, there are other things, other wineskin containers 
that just quite frankly are, are not healthy. I mean, I can think about things in my own life, things that I leaned into that I thought were healthy, that were going to get me to the next place. And then as I got older, I realized that they were toxic and were actually causing the exact opposite problem in my life. Instead of bringing life, they were bringing death. How many of you guys have things like that in your life? Things in your life that you leaned into because in your mind you thought it was the right thing, but it ended up not being the right thing. In Galatians, which we just finished our whole Galatians series, Paul talks about this idea of sowing into the spirit or sowing into the flesh. And when we sow into the flesh, sometimes that feels right, but ultimately it, it, it ends up reaping the things of the flesh. But when we sow in to please the spirit, God can do new things in us. So we started last week looking at this idea of new wineskins. Now here we are, and we're continuing this idea of where is God leading us? What are the things that God is doing in our church? And are there things in our life that we need to move from? Are there areas, containers that maybe aren't serving us anymore? But more importantly, where are the new things that God is moving? What are the things that God is pulling us into that he wants to get in the way? And the way that we do this is instead of getting caught up and focusing on the what we do, we want to get caught up in the why we do it in the first place. If you've ever been to uh, uh, the ocean, it's like surfers. The goal of a surfer is not to make waves, but to look for the wave that's coming. And our job is not to try and create movement. It's to look at the places and spaces where the Holy Spirit is already in the business of moving, and then we just get in the way and ride the wave. Does that make sense? And so how do we have eyes to see and ears to hear? How do we allow ourselves to get into that position to where we can start saying, okay, God, where are you moving? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go in my life? Where do you want to go in my family? Where do you want to go in my job? Where do you want to go in the things that you're calling me to? But in order to do that, we have to have the right mindset and the right heart. And that's not always easy. Now, we've been talking as a church, moving into new things. And what we're asking is, is that maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit has been doing some stuff in Zion for years, and we're just now having eyes to see it and ears to hear it. And the thing is, is that Zion is not an institution. It's you and it's me. We are the church. And as we're looking and trying to pay attention to these movements, I think part of it started last week as we began to ask, what does it look like to move into that newness? What does it look like to move into things that please the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And, and when we do that, how do we see where God is doing, but then participate and join with Him? Now, a year ago, we launched uh, this kind of a new vision for our church. And I know y'all, here's the deal. By the time our staff is sick of it, it probably means y'all are finally catching up to it. We want to become a Tove church. What does the word Tove mean? It's Hebrew for the word good, okay? And here's what we did about a year ago. We realized is that we want to be a church that doesn't just do good, but brings God's goodness, his tove into the world and the lives of people around us. And as we looked at that, it's, I believe it's us wanting to partner 
with what God is already doing. This is the heart of the gospel. Now, I'll be honest, and, and I've talked about this before. There are a lot of people right now who are distancing themselves from the church, people who are walking away from church. There are those who have never wanted to step in. And I think part of it comes from this. They think that it's instead of being the gospel being good news, they think it's just good advice. And let me kind of share more about what I mean by this. See, sadly, a lot of churches have not actually shared the gospel as something that's good news. It's more of just, well, you should do this. Let me give you another example here. Um, a lot of churches, the good advice is this. Well, if you want to go to heaven, you need to believe in Jesus. And what that ultimately tells people is the good advice of the gospel is, is that if you don't trust in Jesus, well, this world sucks. And, uh, and if you don't, you go to hell. That's, that's not good news. That's just advice, but on the flip side of that, you have another form of good advice, which happens in the church, which is, hey, the, the gospel is really just about life. If you want to be the best you you can be, just follow Jesus. Again, that's not good news. That's good advice. It actually doesn't provide hope or joy or lasting change in anything. It doesn't bring tov. So if the gospel is not just good advice, if it's actually good news, how do we get there? And I think this is where part of our problem comes in is that we don't always understand that when the Bible, when the writers of the New Testament, when Jesus talked about the church and the gospel, it wasn't just advice for living. It was news that was meant to change the world. And so what makes the gospel good news? Well, the good news is that it's not just a way to bypass hell like some spiritual get out of jail card from Monopoly, which is sadly how many people treat it that way. It's actually that the gospel means good news right here and now. That when the gospel of Jesus is rightly, it's here. So this morning we're going to be talking about this and, and getting into why what got us here may not be the thing that God is carrying us into the future to get us there. When I was younger, when I became a Christian, the reason I became a Christian is I didn't want to go to hell. That's really what it was. My youth pastor talked about Jesus, said if you want to go to heaven, if you want to believe in Jesus, I raised my hand. And, and here's the deal. I'm actually grateful for that. Because at that point in my life, that's what I needed. I was afraid that, oh my gosh, I don't want to spend eternity in hell. I was only thinking about the future. And here's why that matters, is that at that point in my life, that actually was kind of good news, but it wasn't enough to actually satisfy me when I got older. But it did provide a framework. So for instance, my wife, when her mom died six years ago of cancer, knowing that there's an eternal life brought hope. That's why we as Christians, when we're confronted with death, we have the ultimate hope and joy as part of that good news is that in Jesus, there is everlasting life. That brings us joy. That brings us hope. But it's got to be so much more than that. But when I was younger, it got me in the door. The problem is what got me in the door wouldn't keep me in the room. And I think this is what's happening with a lot of people now in churches and in faith is the thing that got them there when they were younger, the thing that served them early on isn't enough to sustain them. And so what do we do? How do we move forward? And I think it starts with understanding what the gospel actually is, what makes the gospel good news. Because as I started to grow in my faith, as I started asking questions, as I started experiencing heartache and heartbreak, 
what I discovered is that just a knowledge of the future wasn't enough to keep me. God wanted to do something new. The Holy Spirit was changing some things in my life and opening my eyes to, I needed a bigger gospel. I needed a gospel that wasn't just about the future, but was about the present. That actually had an impact here and now. The old wineskins just weren't enough. They weren't strong enough to handle the new, new wine of where the Spirit was trying to move in my life. And so what did I do? Well, I'm kind of one of those people, I thirst for knowledge and experience. I love reading and growing, and so I started reading books. And, and I remember the first time I read a book by a guy named Mike Iaconelli. Mike Iaconelli was called the youth pastor's pastor. He had the, he had the fastest declining church in America. He had a, a, a church for bikers and drug addicts, and, and every youth pastors loved this guy. And he wrote this book called Messy Spirituality. Now, last week, I shared my story about Jan Gervais, my teacher at the humanities class. And I remember in my um, mid-20s, I read this book by Mike Iaconelli, and it was the first time that I realized that part of the gospel that I was missing was the gospel of grace. And messy spirituality kind of opened my eyes. And then after that, I read Philip Yancey's What's So Amazing About Grace and how messy grace can be because grace meets us in our brokenness and our ickiness. And, and yet that's what love does is it meets in those difficult places. Uh, to quote Kate Hopple, go Bob Goff, love does. Like it's about loving in action. And then I started getting, as I got older and that thirst for more information, I started reading things from Dallas Willard and N.T. Wright and Peter Scazzaro and Brian Zond and my my. The, during the sermon read-through last week, the staff goes, we get it, Jason, you read, way to go. And here's the thing, you don't have to be a reader. I love, that's just who I am. I'm one of those people that I, I like knowledge, I like information. But whoever you are, wherever you are, you need to find that thing that allows you to step in to experience a gospel that's bigger than maybe you realized. Now, whatever that looks like for you, if it's reading and you don't know what to read, come and talk to me. I'll point you to some great books. It could be a podcast. It could be surrounding yourself with people who understand a gospel that's bigger than just the future, but it's in the moment right now. I started realizing that my limited view of the gospel was actually limiting me and the the way that God wanted to work and grow in me. I started to understand that what makes the gospel of Jesus good news isn't about what God promised to just do in the future. It's also about what God promises to do here and now. That's why it was good news. Now, last week I started with Mark chapter 1. And when Jesus began his ministry, it was right after John the Baptist was put in prison. And Jesus goes out and here's what he says. And if you were here, you heard this. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, Jesus hadn't even begun his ministry yet, and he's proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, so repent and believe the good news. And then what does Jesus do? Jesus moves into action. He doesn't just talk about the kingdom of God, he demonstrates the kingdom of God. And he starts going out and showing that the kingdom of God is not about mental knowledge, that's part of it, but it's so much more. It's actually invading, it's going out into the practical ways of living. So here's what Jesus does. Jesus heals people. He preaches and teaches the word of God. He feeds people. He loves on people. He cares for widows and the oppressed. He plays with children. Like that's one of the ways that Jesus showed the kingdom of God was at hand is he went and played with children. That's pretty awesome. The kingdom is tangible. It's not just intellectual. 
He then goes from there and we see that he starts challenging religious corruption. He sets people free. He breaks bread with broken people. He makes space and time for people that have been pushed aside. He surrenders his life as a sacrifice and he ultimately forgives those who have even abandoned him. Now, don't get me wrong, there are miracles all over the place that are happening, but you know what? The miracles are not the why, the miracles are the what. I've said this the last couple of weeks, God cares way more about what you do in the natural than he does the supernatural. The miracles demonstrated his power, but they were the what he did. The real reason was why he came. He didn't come to do miracles, he came for people. For God so loved the world, in this way God showed his love for the world that he gave his one and only son. The miracles were the what, not the why. The why was people. And it was Jesus meeting people in their actual needs and their physical needs. That's where stuff started to happen. That's where transformation happened. This was the gospel moving out into the world. Now everything that Jesus did ultimately had a bigger why. And this goes back to this new phrase that we brought Jesus came to bring God's goodness, his tove, back into the world. Everything that Jesus did when he was showing the kingdom of God at hand, they were physical demonstrations of God's tove, God's goodness. Uh, we're going to read our text this morning. So if you would, would you please stand with me as we read Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But what about you, Jesus said, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by, the, by, my, by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. The word of the Lord... Praise be to God. You may be seated. Check this out. Okay, so Jesus came to bring Tov into the world, to bring God's goodness back into the world that has lost it. And he starts off by saying, listen, guys, I know that I've been doing a bunch of stuff. I've been performing miracles and I've been healing people. I want to know, who do people say that I am? What are the people saying about me? Now, the Jews had been waiting for the prophets to return. This was part of what was in their mindset is they believed that when God's kingdom was going to usher in, he was going to send back the voices of the prophets into the world to proclaim the goodness of God. And that, now this is not reincarnation, okay? I want to make this clear. This isn't some mystic thing. They believed that the prophets would be resurrected. Here's the deal. They didn't have pictures back then, so you didn't know what the prophets looked like. So they were thinking, well, maybe Jesus is Jeremiah resurrected as the prophet, or maybe he's Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, or maybe he's somebody else. Either way, what they were looking for is they were assuming that Jesus was one of those. One even said, maybe he's John the Baptist resurrected. Here's the problem. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, so that couldn't be. So Jesus turns to his disciples and say, I get what they say. But if you're a follower of me, who do you say I am? Who do you think I am? And Peter stands up and responds, well, 
you are the Son of God, the Messiah. Now, here's what's interesting about this, and this is where we're getting into, and I promise the plane's taken off here. Jesus' response to Peter is, you understood something, and because of this, you didn't understand it through human intellect or through discerning. It was the Father working through the Holy Spirit. Now, because of this, you're the rock. There's a rock, not this rock. That's not the rock he's referring to. I need a volunteer. Can I get a volunteer? Eric, can I grab you for a second? Come here. Everybody give Eric a hand. Okay, so check this out. So now Catholics, now my Catholic brothers and sisters, and I want you to hear this. Catholics, a lot of Catholics love Jesus. And if you put your faith and hope in Jesus and you love Jesus, you're saved. That's what makes you saved. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Baptist, Lutheran, Methodist, Presbyterian, non-denominational, if Jesus is our common denominator. Now, there's some disagreement about what this text means, okay? So now one is, you're Peter, okay? Now, the word Peter in Greek is Petros. Everybody say Petros. Literally means the rock, okay? Now, Catholics say this, that Jesus looks at Peter and say, Peter, upon this Petros, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And then he says, now, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. And whatever you bind in heaven, meaning, in other words, whatever you say is not going to happen isn't going to happen. And whatever you set loose in heaven will happen on earth. They think that everything goes through the line of Peter. Okay, that's our Catholic brothers and sisters. Now, there's disagreement on this, so I could be wrong. But here's the thing. In Greek, the word that he uses for Peter is Petros. Petros means little rock. And then he says, upon this Petra, which means big rock. Here's what I think actually took place. Little rock, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Now, I want you to think about how much different that makes this text. Peter is not the central person of the church. He's not the Pope. Peter is, it's his confession in Jesus. When Peter declares, you are the Messiah, son of God, Jesus is saying, hey, you're right, but you didn't figure that out. It's the Holy Spirit in you that figured it out. And guess what? Little rock, upon this big rock, the gates of hell will not prevail. Does that make sense? All right, give give it up for my buddy Eric here. Okay, now check this out. So as he's doing this, he then gives this authority. And here's what I think is happening. Jesus is saying, we are at war. There is a war that is going on in the world for the hearts and minds of people, for the souls of those who are not in the kingdom yet. And this rock, which is Jesus, our hope, the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? And Jesus is the foundation of that, and our authority comes from Christ. Here's the problem. I think way too many of us don't understand the spiritual authority we have in Jesus. You have authority and power to take back ground. When Satan twisted God's promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, what ended up happening was Adam and Eve's primary job was to bring God's tove, his goodness, out into the world. How do I know this? Well, on each of the day except for one, every time God ended the day, he declared the day was good, tove. And Their job, God had put them in the garden because their job was to expand the goodness of God out into the world around them. But when sin entered in, when Satan deceived them, he literally took away their spiritual authority. The authority that they had in Christ or in God was, was perverted and twisted. And now instead of bringing God's goodness in the world, they brought human frailty and failure. 
Well, Jesus came to reclaim that back. Jesus didn't just come to restore Israel. He came to restore the garden. Jesus came to take what was lost, take that ground that was lost to the enemy and to restore it. Now, this is why this is interesting. If we are at war, we are. Now, right now, physically, there's an actual war going on in Ukraine. We've been watching it. That is a physical war. But would you also agree it's a spiritual war? That the reason why Putin wants that land is because Satan has deceived him and Putin has sowed into the flesh instead of the spirit. Putin is deceived. Putin is bought into lies. The spiritual reality is affecting the physical reality. And that's happening not just there, it's happening everywhere. It's happening in Clear Lake. It's happening in this church. It's a reality. Now, we believe in a literal Satan. We believe that Satan exists. He is not a co, he's not equal with God. It's not light side of the force and dark side of the force at odds. Satan is a created being. He was an angel who rebelled against God and took a third of heaven with him. We believe that Satan roams around the world around us, and therefore we have a literal enemy. And so when we look at this, here's some of the things that the Bible tells us about our enemy. And here's the thing: if you want to know. How, you're, well, how to defeat your enemy, it helps to know how your enemy thinks. It helps to know what are the things that he's doing, what are the grounds that he's trying to conquer or to take. John 8, Jesus is talking to the disciples or to the Pharisees, and he says this, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native tongue, his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is the original deceiver and perverter of truth. That's what we found in Genesis. Paul tells us that Satan is the little God. We tend to make him God of this world, but he has, he has reign here right now. Paul tells us that because he has, he's the God of this age, this world right now, he blinds people to the dominion of darkness that they live in. So people don't even realize that they're lost, that they're in the dark. He tells us that Jesus tells us that the thief, Satan, is a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants to destroy all that is tov. He tells us that he's a stumbling block and a tempter. Jesus had an actual encounter with Satan. That's, that, was, that wasn't just a, a, a mental thing. It really happened. He had an encounter with Satan who tried to tempt him. When Jesus was heading to the cross... Satan had influenced Peter, and Peter tried to get in the way of the gospel of the cross happening, and Jesus had to rebuke Peter, and he said, listen, get behind me, Satan. We know that also that Satan is like a prowling lion looking to destroy and devour. He's a schemer and a planner. He's an accuser and divider. But here's the most important thing. He's always less than Jesus. Satan is no match for Jesus. He is at odds with Jesus. He is going to lose to Jesus. Now, I want to read that text in Matthew one more time. Listen to these words now through that lens of knowing that we are at war and that God is calling us to bring Tov into the world. Verse 17, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because flesh and blood, the spirit, or that, that's not what revealed this to you, but my father in heaven through the spirit did. And I also say to you that you are Peter, the little rock. But on this big rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. Then he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. We're talking about spiritual warfare. 
And that truth is, is that there was an old wineskin that I used to hold, and, I, and, and maybe you've bought into this. I used to think, and what I was taught was, is spiritual warfare is always about prayer. That's all it is. All I had to do was prayer, pray. If I, if I wanted to launch spiritual warfare, I prayed. That's it. I prayed. I prayed. You need to pray for hours. And there was even this song. You guys remember the band Petra? Any Petra fans out there? My first Christian cassette. Now, children, a cassette is this little thing. My first cassette was a, a, an album from Petra, called, and it was called This Means War. And there was a song on it that said, get on your knees and fight like a man. Here was the problem. I thought that's all I had to do was pray. That spiritual warfare was just about me praying. Now, there is some truth in that. Can I go over to Ukraine and pick up a gun and fight? No, I can't. There, I, I can't. Feed, I can't feed every child in Africa. There are some things that all we can do is pray. But the real question is not do we do with the things I can't do anything about. It's what are the things that I can do something about. What are the things in my life where God is saying it's not just about prayer. It's prayer and then action. For instance, if my neighbor is hungry and I pray, Lord, I just pray that you'd feed my neighbor. Feed my neighbor, Lord. Please, please, please feed my neighbor, Lord. Now, that sounds spiritual, but what if what God is saying, Jason, feed your neighbor. You've prayed about it. Now do something about it. Now, all of a sudden, it's not just about prayer. It's prayer in action. And it's not that prayer isn't important. Prayer is absolutely important. Ephesians 6, the armor of God, talks about that our battle is not just against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in heaven. And then in 6.18, now listen to this, in Ephesians 6.18, it says this, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Why do we need to put on the armor of God? I used to think the armor of God was defensive, but remember it just said the gates of hell will not prevail. I need to put on the armor of God through prayer because we're storming the gates of hell. We're storming the kingdom of darkness. And Satan is going to do everything he can to get you out of the business. And so, yeah, he's going to shoot arrows at you. He's going to fling shame. He's going to fling your sins and failures at you. And that's why you need the armor of God. And you pray that armor of God, but it's meant to lead us into tangible things. Now, as a staff and as a council, we're reading this book called Simple Church. In it, he addresses this thing about the gates of hell. Now, I had never thought about it this way until I was reading this book. And I was like, I can't believe I missed this. Gates are always defensive. That's the point of a gate. A gate is defensive. It, it's never offensive. You put a gate up because you're trying to keep what's already yours. Here's what Tom Rainier writes in Simple Church. The gates of hell are powerless to contain the movement of the gospel. Jesus started the movement and hell cannot contain it. There is another thing about gates. They are always defensive. They protect, they guard, but they never attack. The gate is inept. Gates are never on offense, only defense. Hell is always on defense. However, the movement of the church is never on defense, only offense. The church always has the ball. There are no defenders on the squad. This is good news. Not good advice, good news. Victory is guaranteed. The question is not whether we are going to win. 
Our victory celebration has already been determined. Christ has promised it. We win in the end. In fact, the enemy never even gets the ball. The kingdom of darkness is stuck on defense, and we are on perpetual offense. This got me thinking, then why do we punt so much? Why do we as a church, why do I in my own life, if I've got the ball, if I'm always supposed to be on offense, why do I tend to punt and give back to the enemy what was already taken. There are things in my life where God has told me that if I'm aligned with him, I'm going to move in his kingdom. I'm taking back ground that the enemy had. And yet what I tend to do is this, ah, and I give it back. Why is it that we as a church punt? Why is it that I as a follower of Jesus tend to punt when Jesus just told me that I have authority and power in my life to take back ground lost to Satan in the fall, in our community, in this church. And here's what I think it comes down to. We don't understand the gospel. We don't understand the authority and the power that we have in Jesus to live out and to take back ground lost to sin in our own lives and in our community. So what are we supposed to do with this? Remember, the church is about people. Which means that Jesus has said, you and I, us, we don't have to live life on defense anymore. Too many of you in this room live on defense. You're just simply trying to hold on to what you've already got. That's an old container. And I'm here to tell you that the new thing that God wants to do in your life and my life and in this church is he's given us authority to take ground. To take ground in our marriage. To take ground in our family. To take ground in our community. But we can't punt the ball anymore. We can't just simply say, "Ah, I I know I have it, but here, take it back. No, we are on offense. And this means something different now. It's a new container, a new wine. And so how do we do this? Well, the good news of Jesus is good because it means God is doing and wants to do something even now in the world. And we've been called to partner with the work of the Spirit to kick down the gates of hell. How do we do that? Well, this is where Tov comes in. The way that we invade the territory of the enemy, the way that we take back ground is by bringing God's goodness into the world, into our marriages. And I want you to hear this. If your marriage is struggling, maybe the first place you need to bring Tob is into your own marriage, to your spouse. If you're struggling, maybe you need to allow God's goodness to invade your life. When we look at Tov, this idea of Tov is that we know that God has called us to be on offense, not defense. And so when we purposely say we're going to bring Tov into our lives and into the world around us, we are saying we're storming the gates of hell. Amen? But that means intentionality. It means that we are aware of what we're trying to accomplish, that we are trying to actively do this. Now, here's the difference. Remember, we don't want to just do good. We want to bring God's goodness. You don't have to be a Christian to do good. And this is where it matters. Remember, we talked about the what and the why. For us, Tov is the what. It's the why we're doing it that changes it. When we do something in the world for the sake of God's kingdom, for his goodness, it's our motivation that changes. We might do the same things, but we're doing them for very different reasons. Let me share a story with you. So I've told you guys before, my wife and I have a policy. And the policy is this, is that anytime we feel like the Lord asks us to buy somebody's groceries or to pay for whatever's in the cart, if we feel like it's the Holy Spirit doing it, we do it. So about two years ago, 
we were in line at Target, and it was around Christmas time, right before, it was actually right, uh, right as we went into lockdown. And here we are, and I'm standing in line at Target, and this woman is paying for a bunch of, looks like Christmas gift toys, and she's got gift cards. And I turn to Lisa, and I go, I, I think the Lord wants me to buy her things, and Lisa's like, okay, go for it. So I turned to the lady, and I said, ma'am, um, I feel like, I don't, I don't know where you stand, but I feel like the, the Lord, I feel like God wants me to buy, buy these for you. She goes, what? I said, I feel, I feel like God wants me to, to bless you and buy, these, buy your cart for you. And she goes, um, can I give you my gift cards? I'm like, no, 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 that's an exchange, not a blessing at that point. And all of a sudden she starts crying. I said, ma'am, you know that Jesus loves you. And she's like, I know Jesus loves me. <laughs> and, I'm like, and, she's, and I'm like, oh, okay. And so I pay for stuff. Now, here's the crazy part. I'm trying to do a, a practical way of loving her. The cashier all of a sudden goes, I can't believe I'm seeing this. She starts telling other people, you guys got to see this. I've never, this guy's buying her cart. And, and here's the deal. Now, this woman, I, I believe she loved Jesus. But that cashier, she'd never seen anything like that before. I was simply trying to, at that point, I didn't know about Tove. I was simply, I wanted her to know that God loved her through a simple act of kindness. But did it just bless her? No, it blessed the cashier. I have no idea the impact that that, had, that moment might have had from there on. I never saw the woman again. I never will. I don't, maybe I will. I don't know. It was a small act of bringing God's goodness. Do you think ground was taken back in that moment? Yeah. Now that seems big. Someone's like, Jason, I don't know that I can do that. Sometimes a simple act, I, we had a, a couch delivered to our house this week and I started talking to the guys who were delivering it. And as we're talking, the guy made a comment. He goes, you know, hey, bless you. And I'm like, oh, I said, man, Jesus loves you. He goes, yeah, I know. And we ended up having about a five minute conversation about faith. And this guy was sharing about how he's been back in church and loves Jesus. And man, that was a Tove moment. He, he got to encounter through just a delivery. It was a moment of taking ground. What if we as a, as a church, not just as a staff, what if we started looking for intentional ways to celebrate, but more importantly, to look for those Tove moments? So here's what we're doing. We're launching something today that's not going to become part of our church ethos. We are launching Tove moments. On our website, it says Be the Tove. It's also on our app. And here's what we want from you guys. We are going to, as a church, look for intentional ways to bring Tove, not to make Zion look good, but to show God's goodness in the world around us. Does that make sense? This isn't about Zion. And that might seem like on any given Sunday. We started to measure what God is doing in and through our church because God is measure what God is doing in and through our church because God is calling us to take back ground and we do that by bringing Tov. Let me give you some examples. If Satan speaks lies into people's lives, we speak God's goodness and truth. Where Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy... We seek to bless, bring life, and restoration. When Satan wants to tempt, we want to show God's faithfulness. Where Satan brings disunity and war, we make peace and seek unity. Where Satan imprisons, we show them the king who will set them free. Yes, we pray, but then we move. This is a call to action. And the question I have is, will you take this step with us? Will you as a church community commit to be a people who bring Tove. Will you share? Will you share those moments? Will you share? Will you share those moments? Will you help us keep track? Not so we can go, yay Zion, but so we can say, God, look how you're moving. Look 
what you're doing. We need to pray for our families. We need to pray for our church. We need... It's easy. It's, it's the day-to-day things, the ways that God wants to intentionally want to work in our lives, that we live out our vision and our mission as, our, in our, as a church, but it's how we do it and why we do it. And it starts with you and me, and it doesn't have to be big things. It can be small ways of bringing blessing into people's lives, and you might think that moment is insignificant. Now, I want to I paint a picture here. Imagine we start having people who come into the doors of Zion, and we've never met them before. It's their first time, and as we're talking to them, they begin to share story after story of someone at Zion who blessed their lives, who brought a little bit of goodness. This doesn't mean we're going to see 100,000 people saved. Those 100,000 moments might be so five people get saved. Because maybe it's a collection of those moments piling on like a wave on a person's life. But here's the bigger part. When you commit to being a part of God's goodness, when you commit to be a person of Tov, not only will you change their life, but you'll change yours. Because you are saying, I want to sow into the things of the Spirit. I want to sow into the things of God. I want to sow into God's goodness in my life and in others. So when I, uh, I was a youth pastor about 2003, 2004 in Egan, Minnesota. And a group of my junior hires and high schoolers wanted to go praying. And so we decided we were going to drive to downtown. I think it was St. Paul, might have been Minneapolis. And here I am walking with this group of junior hires. And I'm going to say some words that parents might want to cover your kids' ears because you don't want to explain some things. That's fine. And we're walking and we see a strip club. And my junior hires like, let's pray over the strip club. And I'm like, awesome. So here we are, this collection of junior high and high school students. We're laying our hands on the strip club and we're praying over it. All of a sudden, from the top of the building, we hear, hey, what are you doing? We look up, and it's two strippers on a smoke break. And I begin to talk, and I'm like, well, we're praying for you. And she goes, oh, that, why? That's really nice. I said, well, and I'm like, what I wanted to say is, because you need to stop stripping. But what, what they needed to hear in that moment was, is because I believe God wants so much more for your life. And as they're doing that, they're like, oh, that's so sweet of you. All of a sudden, this guy comes up and he's delivering like cases of soda and he sees what we're doing and he begins to get hostile with us. He starts threatening us. So a friend of mine, I talked about him last week, my, my friend Dan Shoemake, who I mentored at this point. Dan's kind of a big guy. He steps up and this grown man confronts a 17-year-old boy. You want to step up, son? And threatens him. So I push Daniel back and now here's the best part about it. This guy starts taunting us, yelling at us, threatening us the strippers come to our defense. So here we are, this group of Christians and strippers like, leave them alone. They're good people. They're praying. And, and I'm sitting there I'm like, okay, and this guy's still getting hostile and, and there's spiritual warfare going in. So I'm like, you know what, let's just leave. So we're walking away and this guy is still spewing venom at us. And when I say venom, he's threatening to hurt us. And my girls, the girls in my youth group are getting freaked out and we're about a block away and he's still cussing at us and saying really inappropriate things towards kids. And under my breath, just like this loud, so the kids could hear it, I go, in the name of Jesus, shut up. And instantly the guy stopped talking. I was like, wow, this prayer thing works. (laughs) Let me ask you a question. Do you think God's goodness took ground at that moment? Do you think that in that moment, whether or not we knew it or not, 
Do you think we were taking back ground that was lost to the enemy? That maybe, maybe, I think it'd be amazing if one day I ended up meeting one of those strippers. She's like, you don't know it, but that encounter, I started meeting Christian after Christian. I eventually gave my life to Jesus. And I think that'd be incredible. I don't know if it happened or not, but it could have. But here's the deal. Regardless of whether or not I know the outcome, God still worked in it. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to give you a challenge. And if you're willing to step up to this, here's what I want you to do. Will you raise your hand and say, I will. Will you commit to being a part of what God is doing? Will you commit to being a people of Tove with us to share these moments? If you will, raise your hand and say, I will. This is our challenge as a church. This is our call as a church. We don't want to just talk about Tov. We want to celebrate those Tov moments, those moments of bringing God's goodness. And that's why we're going to celebrate them. That's why I want you to go online and track them. And as we get closer to that 100,000, I'm believing God wants to do more. And you don't even have to go to our church. You can still bring it to your church, bring it to your community. If you're visiting, be a part of it because God is doing something so much bigger than just here at Zion. Amen? With that being said, we're going to take our tithes and offerings. We're going to come and lay things down. But more importantly, we want to worship. And so as you come, I want you to know this. The greatest Tove moment in your life is the moment you became a follower of Jesus. That was God's Tove breaking into your life. Let us be a people who bring Tove into the world, who celebrate it, who take back ground that was lost to sin. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen. Let's come and worship the Lord and bring our tithe and offering.